This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. What is consciousness? Which animals have it? And why has it evolved? The theoretical psychologist Nicholas Humphrey has pursued these questions for 50 years, and in his new book Sentience, proposes a set of radical iconoclastic answers that will make you think again about humans, animals and machines. He joined us in conversation with David Malone. I think one of the things I really liked about the book is that you, um, you're quite rigorous about what it is you're trying to explain, mm-hmm. but you don't try and offer an explanation as others have done by explaining it away. And there's, sort of, there's a lovely quote, which for me, as soon as I hit it, I thought, ah, okay, this is how the book's going to be. Page 25, you say, there's something dreamily mad about human consciousness. It gives us a wonderfully inflated notion of our own metaphysical importance. And what I liked about that is you stuck with that. You said that's what we have to explain, this this slightly mad, inflated sense of our own importance, rather than explaining it away. Why did you do that? Why not just do what lots of other people have said and said, yeah, I know it feels like that, but it's not. It's just a, it's an well, illusion. David, I suppose I did it because... That's how it feels to me to be. And the more I talk to other people, it's clear that actually they share that opinion. Consciousness is an extraordinary phenomenon. It's an enigma, but it's our enigma. And uh, that, in a way, gives us, makes a starting point that we have evolved a way of experiencing the world, which makes us feel that we're very special, that to be a human being and a conscious human being is a remarkable event in the history of the universe for each of us. and. I've gone on to make that the cornerstone of my explanation of the adaptiveness of consciousness that it gave us, and of course our ancestors too, and our ancestors far back, I would include chimpanzees and dogs even amongst this, they believe in themselves as being special. They have a sense of self, which is hugely important to them, and which they not only work with to build up their own uh, lives, but they attribute to others like themselves. So the crucial thing about consciousness is not only that I feel and therefore I am, but that you feel and therefore you are too. And that's is the basis of the life of social animals like ourselves. It goes back at my this idea of what the self goes back, of course, to David Hume, who said that, that when he looked into himself, all he could find at the core of it was sensations. 
And he thought that was rather a shame. I mean, what if, you know, it sounded too kind of uh, paltry for him. He wanted something grander. But what can be grander than sensations as we experience them? I mean, isn't it extraordinary to be someone who lives in this in the presence, lights and sounds and smells and tastes and pains, which have this amazing magical feeling to them. And so what I do is I go back to Hume's definition. Yeah, it is about sensations, but don't dismiss them. Sensations are extraordinary. And perhaps they've evolved to be extraordinary precisely to give us an important sense of who we are. Yeah, and you you, you make a distinction right at the beginning of the book, said, look, let's be clear about what we mean. What is this it that we're trying to explain? And you, you make this distinction between what you call sentience or phenomenal consciousness and cognitive. Explain why that distinction is really important. Well, it's partly important because other people don't make it and they get very confused as a result. Um, there's a, often the view that consciousness you know, is just a smorgasbord of interesting properties. Uh, and to have any part of it is probably going to imply having any other part of it. I don't think that's true. And the reason I don't think it's true is partly my own experience in research. A very long time ago, back in the 1960s, I did some work which was both the basis for the discovery of blind sight. Blind sight is vision without conscious awareness. And I showed that a monkey who'd had the visual cortex removed by as part of my PhD research, Larry Weiskrantz, my supervisor, had done this experiment. He'd taken out the visual cortex from this monkey. She was called Helen. And to begin with, she seemed to be completely blind. Now, that was kind of expected. It was fitted with conventional idea about how vision is, works in the brain. But I had the lucky break. I spent time working with this monkey, trying to persuade her that she wasn't blind. And lo and behold, she responded to my invitation. She began to see again. So I sat with her and I played with her. Uh, as a result of that, within a few weeks, she was using her eyes again. And I went on to work with this one monkey, in fact, for seven years. But the important thing is that her vision wasn't like our vision. It was pretty clear to me that something very significant was, was missing. And that was that she herself didn't believe in it. It wasn't giving her any sense of her own capacity or her own presence in the world. And this got confirmed when Weiskrantz himself studied human patients, again, looking at them in the way we'd find out with Helen. He asked the patient with visual damage to visual cortex, not um, can you see, because I know you're saying you can't see, but if you could see, what would be out there? Now point to it if you see a light. And the patient and objected to begin with. I mean, you're trying to make fun of me, doctor. No, no, just try. Just play this game. And the patient could reach out and point to a light source. It went on the patient who said he didn't see this light. It went on to, to, to be proved that the patient could also uh, tell the color of the, an object, could tell the shape of it. There was one patient who could drive a car using blind sight while all the way time maintaining that he wasn't seeing. Now, what that meant for me was, okay, if we can do all this without conscious experience, without just as perception, pure perception, without any sensation accompanying it, then we have the issue of then why did sensation evolve to have all these properties? In a new essay I've written recently for the magazine Eon, I, the paper is called Seeing and Somethingness. 
The question is, what is this something which is added to the mere, mere uh, technical faculty of being able to process visual information? You, you say in the book that there is an older evolutionary pathway for visual information, the tectum, which I think you said um, amphibians have. So some philosophers, no, she had sight of a sort, but it was blind sight. And blind sight doesn't count. It doesn't make you feel that you are significant. It doesn't actually give you any sense of grounding in the world. And what this young woman did very bravely was to give it up. She didn't want that sort of sight. She took up her white cane and went back to being blind. So, so hang on a minute. She would have seen a bird. She, you, she might have seen a pigeon flying by, but she would never go, that bird is beautiful. No, no, she didn't. She didn't there was nothing. All she knew was that she had the information. I mean, it's a, a, probably not a good analogy, but it's a bit like telepathy, blind sight, I think. You, you know things without knowing how you know them. And that's a, it's a very strange thing to the subject of it. And it's also revealing about what exactly is missing if we don't have sentience, if we don't have phenomenal consciousness added to it. Now, as I say in the book, I think most animals are probably in have the condition of blind sight and blind touch and blind pain for that matter. I think they have the information processing, but they're not getting the sensory experience or no qualia associated with it. Would that be like the um, the Terminator then? You know, in the in the Terminator film, he says, "I have data that you would call pain." So well, he's, he's got the information, but doesn't feel yes. pain. Yeah, yeah yes. Okay. I mean, and I mean, of course, it doesn't mean they don't respond to it. Noxious stimuli cause animals to avoid uh, repeating the same thing again, and so on. So it's functional. It's certainly an important and a crucial part of animals' lives right the way down throughout the animal kingdom, I and mean, way down to, to CNN and so on. They need to know when bad things are happening to them, and they can process that information. But then so can a cruise missile. So can my car, for that matter. My car comes up with warnings saying, you know, low petrol, airbags not working, whatever it is, uh, engine failure, stop at once. It's taking action to avoid con the consequences of things going wrong. It doesn't feel any of those things, and there's no experience accompanying it. And that, I think, is actually the condition of the majority of animals, apart from, and of course, this is a very big apart from, mammals and birds. I believe that this new faculty emerged really rather late in evolution. But the rest of animals are, in that sense, to use a pejorative term, they're zombies. Now, this is absolutely at odds with what a lot of people want to believe. It's odds with politics, for that matter. And we've recently, in, in Britain, passed an animal sentience bill, which declares by, by fiat that uh, lobsters and octopuses have sentience, that they are phenomenally conscious. It's based, I think, on very poor understanding of what sentience is about and why it's there. Um, but nonetheless, it's having practical consequences. I mean, we are soon to see legislation which is going to uh, not allow people to boil lobsters alive, for example. Now, okay, let's not boil lobsters alive, but I don't think we should not boil them alive because they're sentient. There may be lots of reasons for protecting animals from harm, but we shouldn't base it all on the assumption that they experience the world in the way that we do. I mean, it's bad science, and therefore, in the end, it's going to be bad politics. Now, we can't. There's no way we can do justice to the to the theory because you wouldn't have written a whole book if it was something we could sum up in a few minutes. But part of the key to how you part of the sort of the mechanism that you think underlies the evolution of 
phenomenal consciousness, you know, the consciousness that you feel, is that where it sort of starts in the book with another experiment which which you were involved in. And this is where you had you were doing um listening to the, a nerve signal, I think. And then the the as you put in the book, that the, the nerve was almost listening to itself. And it creates this sort of loop. Tell us a bit about that, because if I've got that right, it was a, that was sort of the, another p- important part of your journey. Well, it was, David, but it's a, it, was all, it, was, it was important as a metaphor. In this experiment, yes, it turned out that while I was recording from cells which were uh, connected to the eye, they were also connected to the ear. Now, when these cells saw a st- stimulus on the retina, they produced a train of nerve spikes, which in the experiment were being amplified by a loudspeaker, so I could hear them. But the monkey could hear them as well. And the result was that the same cell which had responded to the light was also hearing the light, hearing the sound, and therefore getting into a feedback loop. Now, that gave me an idea, an idea much later on, that this could actually be the basis of something very interesting, which is recursive activity in the brain, activity which catches its own tail in a kind of feedback loop of that sort. And I've made that the basis of a quite sophisticated mathematical theory of some of the features which underlie phenomenal consciousness or sentience. There's certainly not something we can, we need some pictures to describe it, but that was, that experiment gave me a clue. And in the first part of the book, actually, it's largely about the things which happened in rather kind of uh, an extraordinary period of my life. The first 10 years of my life, lots of interesting research possibilities uh, arose. I've just stumbled into things which I wouldn't have expected to. And I've been able to build on this again and again. I, for example, go back to my work with Diane Fossey and Mountain Gorillas, which led me to develop the idea of social intelligence as being the key to the emergence of the human brain and the brain of higher primates. But I never thought at that point I was going to link it to consciousness. Later, I came to see that actually the ability to understand other human beings as being conscious in the way that you yourself are is the basis of what I called natural psychology. So I've developed that theory out of the work with Diane based on the gorillas that gorillas see other gorillas as versions of themselves. They probably saw me as a version of themselves. I saw them as a version of myself. And through that, we could connect and begin to understand and empathize and crucially predict what the other one was going to do. Now, that's a very crucial Machiavellian move. If you can understand somebody else, you have power over them um, or you have sympathy for that matter. But anyway, it's it's a major advance in understanding which is only present in higher vertebrates and birds. There's no reason to think that, let's say, lobsters have any idea of what it's like to be another lobster. There's no, there really is no evidence for it at all. People pick out lobsters, sorry, I should say octopuses they pick out, I'll say the same for them, as being highly sophisticated you know, alien minds. But these are alien minds in an important sense that we wouldn't understand them because they don't understand each other. That's not a faculty which octopuses have, and they don't need it because they don't have a social life. Um, so however clever they are, and they certainly are very clever, um, they probably are alien zombies, um, very good at doing what they do, but they don't need, and therefore they won't have this 
dimension of experience which we take for granted as being at the center of our psychic lives. Hmm. Let's see if we can go back to the, the, the clever mechanism and see if we can give people a bit more of a hint of, of what you're getting at, because it was, it was clever and elegant, I thought. In a way, what you're, if I read it properly, you're saying, look, creatures, they react to something in a, in a completely mechanistic way. I mean, even down to the level of a, you know, a little one, one celled creature, but they, they observe themselves. In other words, they, they may react to the thing, but then somewhere in evolution, there's a, there's a, there's a mechanism which says, I'm going to look at my reaction to this thing. That's right. I mean, it's a, it's a move which is the basis for everything else I've gone to say about consciousness, and I don't think anyone else has made it. Look, let's get down to the basic question of how we perceive the world. Information arrives at our sense organs, our eyes, our ears, our skin, and people have generally assumed that this somehow is passively received and analysed in order to give us information about the world. I suggest no, it's not like that. The way what first happened was that our ancestors of these primitive organisms simply responded in a meaningful way to the stimulus. They'd been evolved to you know, treat it as bad or good or whatever it is. I talk about this as performing wriggles of acceptance or rejection. But that's all it was, simply a response. Then later, it became important to understand what was the origin of this, why, why they were responding, what had happened to them which would have elicited this response. Well, they could have started all over again and done some a new kind of analysis of the incoming information, but they didn't have to. It was all the information, was all the meaning of the stimulation was all present in the way they were responding. They were responding to this kind of stimulus at this place on their body with this, as if it meant this kind of thing. So to find out what the stimulus is like, then look at your own response. It's not a, an unfamiliar thing in neuro, neurophysiology to, for the, an animal or brain to monitor its own efferent response. But I make this the whole basis for how animals originally came to understand what was happening to them. They understood it by analyzing, monitoring what they were doing about it. Yeah, that's the key, isn't it? Rather than saying we somehow have some magical new ability to to understand the outside world what you're arguing is the new ability was to understand our reactions to the outside world and concentrate Absolutely. on that and then it, it creates a loop because you creates a loop because yes by your your understanding what's happening to you and in the process of that there's there's, there's, there's a, the output and input are going to link up and i think that was very surprising and, um, I mean, unexpected, if I can put that way, from the point of evolution, this, this, this feedback loop emerged. And it turned out that animals could exploit it in very special ways because it led to the development of recursive circuits in the brain, which had, they reverberated, they built, they were, uh, they were thickened out in time. But more than that, they actually came to have other very strange and interesting properties. We've known for a long time that feedback loops are not just, you know, not the kind of thing you think about just in terms of when your microphone connects to your loudspeaker and it goes zoom. Uh, feedback loops can have astonishing properties. They can lead to attractor states being developed, states which repeat themselves and, and, and uh, become stabilized. And these attractor states mathematically are 
are absolute goldmine. They, they can have not only many properties, not more than three or four dimensions, they can have an infinite number of dimensions in, in mathematical terms. But I see that as having given evolution an extraordinary opportunity to exploit it, to make these, these feedback loops the basis for a new way of representing sensory experience. And I think what we describe as you know, the phenomenal properties of vision and, and, and touch and everything else are precisely the properties of these attractor states which are being generated in our own brains. That leads me to some other dangerous speculation, I think, because I, don't, I think you have to have rather a, a clever brain to do that, not only to read it and represent it, but actually even to create these food feedback loops may require brain con conduct conductivity rapid enough to sustain these, these and stabilize these loops. And that could have depended on the evolution of warm-bloodedness. Now, people think about warm-bloodedness as just, you know, keeping yourself warm and it allows you, allows you to occupy environments which you couldn't do otherwise. They've paid very little attention. In fact, I haven't seen any cognitive scientists ever mention it to the fact that when you become warm-blooded, the speed of your nerve cells right throughout your body, but crucially in your brain, more than doubles. Uh, into high, higher temperatures, nerves simply conduct faster. So suddenly, the brains of the ancestors who became warm-blooded were working very much faster. And I think that that led to these qualitative changes where suddenly feedback loops became a possibility, or in fact, a probability, where it wouldn't have been true before. And, okay, I, I, I love these coincidences in terms of evolution, because I think evolution always depends on lucky breaks. It so happened that as animals became warm-blooded, they became relatively independent of their local environment. Now, what effect could this have had psychologically? It gave them a sense of independence, an independence which could have underlain the notion of a phenomenal self, an individual self, which matters independently of, 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 of what's happening elsewhere. Now, they would have already had that self. Well, they came together. Well, I mean, so what comes, what you're talking about is that they then become aware of it? They, well, they would, they would have been, uh, they wouldn't have, it wouldn't have been really uh, at all simple uh, or effective to develop this kind of self unless it went along with their psychological changes associated with a change in experience. So, uh, as I say in the book, cometh the brain, uh, cometh the, 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 the need for it, um, cometh the self. Um, these things just were, 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 happened, were coordinated in the history of our ancestors. But, you know, as, as I say, this puts me at odds with a lot of people. All the bird people and the mammal people are happy enough about it. But there are an awful lot of people out there who really want to pitch for, for you know, invertebrates and uh, honeybees and so on. And, but then um, you're, you're not saying that they're not as clever as all of those scientists say they are. You're saying, yes, they are clever. But, you know, to go back to the sort of the, the, the Hollywood films, the Terminator was a very clever chap. He just didn't have any consciousness. He, he didn't Yeah, feel well, he wouldn't have been clever in what the way in which cleverness in the end, really matters to us and to other social mammals. He wouldn't have been good at understanding other creatures because he wouldn't have been attributing a self like his to them. And that's, you know, that kind of fellow feeling has become the basis of human culture and human success. 
of course, not only humans, it was the basis of what happened uh, to our ancestors and right the way back, I think, to, to our mammalian ancestors. ancestors. I've no question at all that dogs have this kind of consciousness and they don't use it, of course, to the extent that we do, but um, dogs are very good natural psychologists. They know, they know how to read other minds, at least particularly to read human minds as it happens. And that convinces me that dogs have a sense of themselves which they can project into humans, just as we project our sense of ourselves into them. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Can I go back to blindsight? Because if I if I understood right, what you're saying now does relate straight back to that. Because I think somewhere in the book you say, not only does blindsight mean that you're not aware that you're seeing something, but it makes you blind to the, the fact that other people would be seeing something. Well, it, of course, in humans, it doesn't, because we only know blindsight in cases of humans who at some point had normal sight. And what's more, they also have normal touch and normal, normal pain and hearing and so on. So they're not a clean case in a way. But what I imagine in the book is what would it be like if you had that kind of blind touch, blind vision, blind feeling from, from birth? I think that you would never develop the idea that other animals have these kind of sensory inputs and can uh, uh, explore the world in that kind of way. And you certainly wouldn't begin to think of them as having a sense of their own importance, which of the kind which is crucial to your own development. I mean, so uh, consciousness, I mean, I like to think of it this way, the kind of conscious, consciousness we have is a very generous faculty. We don't keep it to ourselves. We continually project it onto other human beings and onto other animals, for that matter. So, for example, when you know when we see a red poppy growing in the field, the qualia, the quality of the redness there, is basically something created within our own minds. But we project it as if it was a property of the poppy, and in doing so, we see that poppy as having the power to influence other people in the way it influences us. A red poppy is a poppy which evokes in you the kind of experience I have um, when I see red. And so for, therefore, I, I'm at once in communion with you at that kind of level. And then we do that with people, we think. We project onto other people our internal feeling about what it is to be us and say, well, this is what it feels like to be me. And Nick looks a lot like me. So being Nick probably is quite like being me. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, uh, and, you know, but we take it for granted. But the evidence that other animals have it is, is, is not as good as you might hope. I mean, as I say, I think dogs have it. I think chimpanzees have it. I think it, there's evidence that some birds have it. But most of animals in nature almost certainly don't. You know, the claims that... Uh, that, that, that people might make that that, 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 that 
lobsters or for that matter earthworms or, or bacteria or what you know it's getting mad what people are doing attributing sentience then i think it goes all the way down to you know to brain cells in a vat in a in a in a, in a, in a laboratory people worry about whether this little bit of isolated cortex with the cells doing their thing in a petri dish could be sentient and could be feeling like something could have a self well you know it's just it's a real misunderstanding and really silly. And the best of our scientists are making it. I mean, Anil Seth, uh, uh, who I hugely admire as an experimental student of consciousness, nonetheless makes these extraordinary claims such as that nerve cells in growing in a, in a, in a dish could be sentient and therefore we have a moral duty to look after them. Quite what we do about that, I don't know. But I, these ideas are not... They're, they're relatively new. Um, people are beginning to think about sentience in ways which they didn't in the past, and they're being very promiscuous with it. They're attributing it right across the, uh, the universe. I mean, Robert Sheldrake, of course, writes about whether the sun is sentient, um, but more rational people are arguing about whether chatbots are sentient and so on. Well, you know, it needs to stop because, I mean, if, if sentience matters, then we need to know what, who has it and why, and why it matters to them. If we dilute it by saying everything is sentient, we forget our duty to the animals and maybe possibly future machines, which actually are sentient. And I don't doubt that machines in the future could be sentient, but only if they're given the kind of apparatus for sentience which nature has evolved in human mm. beings. How does that trend come about where people attribute it to individual nerve cells simply because people have tried to come up with theories of this circuitry or that circuitry and have felt that their explanations have failed. So they've said, well, then maybe it's just something intrinsic about nerves. Yes. I mean, that's that's been the, the mistake. Somehow people thought that feeling is intrinsic to material properties of the brain so that that you need to look looking for consciousness in the brain, you need to look for actual mechanisms, brain states, which have the properties of conscious qualia, phenomenal consciousness. I think that's like saying you need to look in the pages of Moby Dick for the whiteness of the whale. You, you know, that's not how it works. A book is a representation of something, and it does it by using the vehicle of printed print on a page in order to convey to us the meanings which we attach to, to it. The brain's the same. The brain is a text, and we read it in some in ways which yield these ideas about uh, phenomenal consciousness and sentience and all the sensations we, we, we glory in. They are representations of something going in our, on in our brain. But the brain doesn't have to have those properties. A representation, the vehicle for it, doesn't have the properties that we attribute to it. That's the whole trick of representation. Representation goes beyond and, and can, in fact, you know, representation can, you can represent things which, of course, couldn't conceivably exist. We can represent infinity and the square root of minus one and all sorts of interesting things um, which don't exist in nature. And in a way, then, yes, I, I liked it when you, when you said that about, you know, that a finite brain can come up with a, an idea of infinity. In a way, what you're saying is we come up with the idea of phenomenal consciousness. We, we come up with this, the idea of feelings, 
And it is those that idea of feelings, just like the idea of infinity, brings infinity into existence mm -hmm. in yes. our minds. It, it, we, we, you know, we, consciousness is dreamed up by the brain, um, but it it doesn't mean you know these dreams are amazingly powerful psychologically, and they're real. I mean, it, no, well, you, I think, you seem to me to depart yeah. from Dan Dennett, who would say, "Yes, I know you think all of that, but it's all a big mistake. It doesn't really exist." It's not what you think it is. And I've always found that. Well, Dan and I go back a long way, as you I know, you know from reading the book. Um, and we have big arguments about what he calls illusionism. Um, I, at one point, went along with this. In fact, I was the origin of some of those ideas that, that actually, in having phenomenal experience, we're experiencing things which aren't real. <laughs> I don't think that's right anymore. And I, the thing is, I, I used an analogy which misled me. I said, probably you're all familiar with the, the, the impossible triangle and the real impossible triangle, which Richard Gregory invented, which was a wooden object, which if you looked at it from just the right position, looked like a triangle which couldn't actually exist. Now, that is clearly an illusion. You think something's there and it's not. But when it comes to, to a phenomenal experience and our evaluating what colors and tastes and things like that, what we're attributing, what we're representing is how it feels to us. And how it feels to us goes on to have important psychological effects. It changes our view of things. And because it, I think feelings at that sense have every reason to be called real. They are real in terms of having, you know, they really have these effects. We can't, it doesn't ex to explain them away. It's not to say that they aren't important and, and, and worth taking seriously and giving names to and allowing to dominate aspects of our lives. So I think feelings are as real as they are to those who experience them. And they are only ideas, but ideas can be tremendously powerful. But to go back to the physics of it, the idea doesn't have to correspond to any physical property in the brain, which is what increasingly people are looking for. I mean, look, all the great grandees of consciousness science now, Christoph Koch, uh, Friston, others, Tononi with his integrated information theory, they're all trying to find ways in which they can say, oh, that's why the brain has these properties intrinsically. That's the Moby Dick fallacy. But it, it's <laughs> interesting because if they're doing that, then how does that relate to the other group of people who are saying, oh, you don't want to be chauvinist about carbon, we can just calculate it in silicon. Well, that's, are they saying that neurons have a, this special ability to contain? Well, some are and some are. And silicon as well by calculating it? Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I mean it, it, take your pick. Some, some, some think biological material is, has properties which nothing else could have. Um, I, 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 I don't think we need, need even go there. I think that silicon can almost certainly duplicate the functional properties of the brain. Silic machines made of silicon, artificial minds can represent things. We already you know, have lots of examples of this going on in the technology around us. They can represent things as having properties, but none of them have yet had any need to represent them as having anything other than the, you know, the bread and butter properties of the material world. No machine yet is needed to represent what it's like to be me interacting with other machines like myself um, in, 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 in this uh, 
extraordinary world full of surprises and of unexpected uh, kinds of inputs, which make it, for me, so wonderful. I mean, I go on in the book a lot about how um, the world is a wonderful source of mystery and, and, and magic. Once you start having sensations and experiencing qualia in the way we do, you only have to step out the door to be you know, just surrounded by poetry. And that really, really matters to us. Our experiences of sunsets and, and, and snowfalls and, and birdsong and so on are crucial to our sense of who and where we are and where we belong because they are informing, they are the basis for our sense of our own person. We are the creatures who are hearing these sounds. We are the creatures who are experiencing the colors and so on. So this becomes an interesting interaction between us as kind of beneficiaries of a world out there, which in itself is cold and, 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 and dark, but it's not as we see it represented in our minds. So you may wonder where I've written several books on consciousness. You might wonder where I'm going next. My next book is called, Why is the World So Beautiful? And it's going to be precisely about how it is that we're so lucky to live in a world which has an endless supply of these sources of magic and magical entertainment for us. It's, but it, if, I, if I understood the writing, it's, it's not just the world out there which is full of the, these surprises, although it, it, it has lots of surprises, but a critical part is it's that internal representation that we bring to the world. In, in a way, we can add as much magic to the world as our representations can afford. No, no, sure. We need we need a stimulus. We need to be we need something to go out staying. But the magic is sort of the internal state. Yes, absolutely. And you know, and um, uh, we may not have finished yet. I mean, people often ask me about uh, psychedelic drugs, for example, and there's how those are affecting phenomenal consciousness not having had direct experience of anything really interesting in the way of drugs, I can't say from, from on my own from what I know, but I think it's very likely that they are changing the properties of these feedback loops and the attractor states and introducing people to ways of experiencing what it's like to be me, which were unknown to others. Um, that's why they've been exploited over the ages, ever since humans began to find the, the possibilities of them. And, but I, you know, there are too many people, I'm, I'm being commercially here, who say, gosh, you haven't lived because you haven't taken these drugs. Um, but for me, the world has got enough of it going. I mean, the world is an extraordinary place um, and we don't need to resort to drugs in order to have these 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 met, uh, highly uh, important experiences of what it's like to be oneself. Well, in in the book, you 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 mentioned a couple of times. You don't make a big deal out of it, but it comes up several times the importance of metaphors. In a way, the representation that we can make of that in those little internal loops and the 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 the, um, uh, the attractor states, which, as you say. Once they're established as a mathematical entity, they they maintain themselves and they can be manipulated into an almost infinite number of different states. Each one of those states could be a slightly different feeling. In a way, why do you need to take ketamine if you surely the first psychedelic drug was language and metaphor, where you transform a man into a lion? Well, um, 
or a sunset yeah. into the way it Absolutely, that, right. that's as psychedelic as it needs to get. I mean, I, I mean, if you if you're not up to that, then you might have to go and buy some psychedelic. <laughs> okay, you'll but get a lot more bang for your buck if you just buy a good poetry book. Okay. <laughs> I mean, you know, we can be superior about this and say, okay, we've been there ourselves because we've read. We've I've taken read. my own drugs, <laughs> <laughs> but nonetheless, it's a serious area for study. I think. Um, and there are people looking precisely at what these drugs are doing. And one thing we know from the people who tell of the experiences that they seem to make time even deeper and thicker than it is normally, perhaps, because the experience, the sensations last for longer, they're even stranger, they're even richer. And we, you know, to put a very simple gloss on this, it may just be that some drugs, uh, carabinoids, may be very effective at this simply change the properties of feedback loops to stretch out the, make the cycles last longer. At the other extreme, in, uh, not, the abs- not, not, not the absence of drugs, but in certain psychological states like depression, where people will say the color has gone out of the world. They don't find any sense of, they don't feel involved. They don't feel it matters anymore. It may well be that that the change, there's been changes in the brain circuits which have effectively reduced these, uh, these, these cycles back down to almost nothing so that we begin to live not in the extended time of sensations, but in the physical time of, 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 of physics, which hasn't, you know, in physics, there's no such thing as the moment. It doesn't last. There's the instant. We don't live in the instant. We live in the moment of sensation, which is always longer than it could physically be. Um, well, that was where your 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 metaphor of the uh, or the of the um, the feedback loop, um, and, and when you say it's a very simple thing, but you know when you bring the microphone close to the the speaker, a single note that would be just there and gone can will sustain itself for as long as you can stand the sound. So as a metaphor, it's it, it's quite revealing and powerful that the, the, what you've got to loop, you can expand that that what would be a moment f- physically. Well, we can do it with the pedal, loud pedal on the piano. Yes, uh, it's, a, it's 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 not unfamiliar that how these things work, but and I think in a way that's exactly what we do, and maybe drugs or certain states of mind can do. They can press the loud pedal so that uh, our sensory states of mind begin to have this extra uh, extra oomph to them. Hmm. If you don't mind, there's a couple of questions coming in. Liz writes, if some insects, such as some bees and ants, live in societies of sorts, has their consciousness evolved in the same way? And if not, why not? Well, it's a very good question. And I think... It's, it's prompted by the fact that we talk about these bees as being social insects, um, and they do have very complicated societies. But the difference between the society of a honeybee or a wasp, for that matter, and human or bonobo society or wolfpack society is that in the insect society, they're all working for the same end. There are no conflicts of interest. They don't have to anticipate and outwit any other creatures in the in the hive or in the nest. For humans and wolves and all other social mammals, for example, life is a continual compromise between doing the best for yourself and maintaining the society on which you ultimately depend. So we have to be clever at another level. We have to have social insight at another level. And that's where 
uh, mind reading and 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 uh, attributes theory of mind begin to come into their own. There's no reason to think that that wasps or honeybees need a theory of mind, and there's no reason to suppose they have it. They certainly need to be able to uh, read the behaviour of other animals and take uh, uh, action on that basis to see wh what they're, where they're going. And of course, they can show sympathy and 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 and, and sense understanding of uh, other members of the colony. But it's a different kind of complexity and. In my view, uh, they don't have to have the qualities of what I've called a natural psychologist. Bees don't need to be psychologists. They just need to be very clever predictors of behaviour. Yes, I mean, that's another thing we haven't touched on, but it, you make quite a, a, a lovely point in the book, is that we've been slightly sidetracked by this um, phrase, theory of mind, because it's it's been in the hands of people who make a living from having theories and having and being very theoretical. And so they've tried to judge other animals um, as how close they are to a theoretical biologist or a theoretical mathematician. Whereas your point is that animals aren't, aren't theorizing. They don't need to have a theory. They don't need to have a theoretical understanding of other minds in the same way as I still couldn't tell you all the rules of English grammar but I can certainly speak English. But you say natural psychologist, you, it's it's not theoretical, is it? Well, no, I, I mean, <laughs> psychologists have distinguished between what they call a theory theory and a simulation theory. Um, I won't go into the technicalities of that, but I'm much closer to those who think in terms of simulation. I think the way we understand others is by putting ourselves in their place and simply living their life for them and therefore seeing where where, 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 where they're going to go. Um, and you don't even so, have to have a theoretical understanding of yourself to do that. Well, theory is not a good term. I agree about that. But we certainly need to have a model, if we can put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I understand the sentences that you're saying, and I think that they're grammatically correct. But if you quiz me as to why I think they're grammatically correct, I can't tell you. I just think they are. But anyway, come back to Liz. I mean, good yes. question about about uh, social insects. Um, and uh, they've come into the news. They always are coming to the news because new extraordinary things are discovered. Only a week or two ago, uh, this paper was published claim that, claiming that bumblebees enjoy play. I make quite a lot of, in my book of play as an important uh, consequence of sentience that we play in order to expose ourselves to new experiences, which basically fill out the sense of what it's like to be a human being or a chimp or whatever. Um, the bumblebee case might be a challenge to that, except if you look at what they were playing at, they're playing at rolling balls uh, along. It, looked, it doesn't look even look like fun, I have to say, when you look at the videos of it. What they're doing is learning skills of manipulation. I don't think any new sensory experiences are involved in it. And that's why it doesn't count of play of the kind I think is crucial to sentience and, and in fact, evidence of sentience. People have said, you know, they challenge me, say, well, octopuses play, but they don't play in that way. There's no example of sensation seeking play for its own sake. Octopuses don't go out and just have fun by exposing themselves to novel and dramatic uh, situations where they're beginning to learn about sensations and combinations of sensations which they've never met before. Look at any dog or look at a, um, uh, particularly a human baby. They're interested, of course, in learning motor skills and things, 
But what really interests them, excites them, is the being exposing themselves to feelings which they haven't had before. And that's what I think makes, I mean, that, that our play very different from that, which has been discovered in lower animals. Yeah, I mean, you, you say in the book that the differences between creatures that are trying to learn something about their environment versus creatures that are trying to learn something about what it is to be them. Yes, yeah. And I thought that was a lovely distinction, that, that it's play for human beings is, what kind of a creature am I? What can I do? How does it feel for me? Not just, you know, what is the shape of that object over there? Yeah. Well, I mean, I've used lots of metaphors in the book. I talk about our own experiences being, I mean, as in, inhabiting an art gallery full of the art which we've created. But I say, well, okay, but isn't it interesting? We have some sense to learn about our own style. We only learn about our own style by being exposed to so many examples of it. You know, just as we might say that Cezanne, if he'd only painted one Cezanne, wouldn't know what a Cezanne was like <laughs> by the end of his life. He was making Cezannes and that was him. That's um, a great example. That's lovely. <laughs> and, uh, and each of us are artists in that sense. And, and I think we should respect that. I mean, I think because it, uh, things change in the course of development, none of us actually has the same phenomenal experience as anyone else. We're all, you know, as all artists are unique, at least to the extent they're good artists, every human being is probably a uniquely creative artist in a way which no one else has actually experienced in the same way. But we're doing the same thing. <laughs> We've got time for a couple more questions. Katya says, look, machine learning algorithms such as neural networks are based on the processing units in the brain, brackets, neurons. You say that the brain and its structures are not necessary for sentience. What else do you think we could base our future algorithms on, future algorithm algorithm processing units on? What other building blocks, processing units, do you think exist that we could replicate? Well, I mean, I know I, I think we've demonstrated already the power of, 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 of silicon chips. And, you know, basically, modern computers can simulate the, a lot of the properties of a human brain. I don't see why it couldn't go much further. There may be issues about, about the speed of conduction and so on, but on the whole, uh, computers can compete us in that respect. Um, they will need to have the programs to do it. And we don't know yet what the programs running in the human brain are, which bring this about. Um, so we're very far away from producing artificial sentience, but in principle, I'm sure we could. Um, I think you know, human brains have evolved the design principles and it's taken a very long time. But I think in principle, we could, uh, by examining sentience as it occurs in humans, begin to understand just what it is going on at a functional level, which produces these kind of representations, these kind of ideas in our brain. So I'm not a chauvinist about biological material. I think, I think uh, that inanimate creatures could in principle have experiences and interact in the kinds of ways which we do. And what's more, there may be some premium in designing them to do that. Uh, you may think, why would we want sentient uh, robots? Well, perhaps we don't want them hanging around London, but maybe when, when we undertake journeys into the future, asking other robots to go in our place to explore the limits of the universe and to bring, us, bring back information, transmit 
mysteries and marvels and discoveries which we ourselves will never have access to because we can't travel through space and spend those those years in in that kind of environment um, and 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 survive. Artificial robots almost certainly can do, but the question I ask is, okay, yeah, but uh, if they're going to be that clever, they have to be pretty clever if they're going to be interested in the kind of things we want them to be interested in, to notice the kind of unexpected things that we want them to be interested in, then maybe they're going to be just so clever that they're going to be asking questions about existential questions about why they're there, what the point of it all is. Um, And maybe one solution to that would be to give them the kind of sense of self which humans have. When When we put our own cousins onto Mars, we can get that far. Nonetheless, they're going to be asking an awful lot of questions of themselves about why they're there. They will answer those questions in terms of the human spirit and the the importance of of, of, the human psyche uh, surviving and and expanding its understanding of the universe. Okay, that's for Mars, but when we go to to Andromeda, it's going to be another story. So maybe other creatures will have to, invented machines will have to do it for us. If they're not going to give up, throw the towel in, I think it mightn't be a bad idea to borrow a leaf from nature's book and give them the sense of self, even of soul, which human beings have. Well, in which case we'd have to ask them if they'd like to go, because we wouldn't be able to order them around. They'd be right. sentient creatures <laughs> like us. Yes. And, but it's yeah, interesting but you mentioned soul. If they have um, the right kind of souls, David, of course they'll say yes. Look, the invitations to visit Mars are well oversubscribed. Um, <laughs> go to Andromeda for the next version of C3PO. Uh, they're going to be falling over themselves. Um, well, it is, it's interesting you mentioned the word soul because um, uh, Andy Clark, once I asked him how he would know if an AI was conscious because Andy thinks we'll have them. And he he said, I would believe an AI that told me it was conscious if it also told me it believed in God. Uh, well, I think... He, he doesn't believe in God as okay, far well, as I know. Of course, just... believing in God seems to me a rather pathetic kind of example, but <laughs> believing in an afterlife and wishing for an afterlife. Yes, okay. Um, I think that's what he meant. Impressive. Um, and I think it's, it's actually one of the consequences of our kind of consciousness is that we value ourselves so highly we can't bear the idea of being extinguished. And therefore we develop stories we tell ourselves about how in fact our minds could survive bodily death. Um, in, I mean, in, uh, survive it in the sense of the self surviving and still being there with its sense of its own importance. That's been a crucial cultural meme uh, for human beings. You know, it, it marked actually the, the beginning of, of real human civilization, the idea of the soul as existing independently of the body. It's you know, it's scientific nonsense, but it's a hugely valuable idea. Mm. A final question, if, if you don't mind, Nick. Um, Naomi says, can you comment about autism uh, with poor T-O-M? She, she said, aren't autists conscious? Yeah, of, well, yes, and autists, or, 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 or people with autism uh, have a different kind of theory of mind. It's not as as, as as effective in many circumstances as ours are, but there are no humans with autism or not who don't understand what it's like to be them and to some extent attribute those 
those traits to other human beings. Autists are mind blind in certain respects, but and, and uh, but we shouldn't exaggerate what what this difference is. Autistic people are as much a sense of present members of the human, conscious human community as any other human beings. So I know I've had this very question thrown at me before. You're saying that autists aren't conscious, but of course I'm, I'm not saying that. I'm saying they have a different kind of consciousness. It may give us clues about why our consciousness works so well for us and to some extent fails them, because in ordinary social circumstances, autists may have trouble. Though of course there are going to be other environments in which they do particularly well. Um, so, um, you know, long live autism. <laughs> Nick, as always, it's a pleasure talking to you. I wish we could chat on, but we're out of time. If you're interested in consciousness, it's a very good book and it tries to explain it without explaining it away. Nick, thanks so much for chatting to us. Pleasure, David. Always nice to see you. This episode starred Nicholas Humphrey and was presented by David Malone. The producer was Luke Naylor Perrett, and the series is made by me and Esme Bright, with help from Nicole Wong. Our editor is John Doughty. If you enjoyed it, I spoke to the novelist Ray Naylor just a few weeks back about his new novel, The Mountain in the Sea, an extraordinary speculative thriller that tackles many of the same themes as this episode in fictional form. Until next time, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening. Welcome to another round of Boardroom or Miroboard. Today we talk retrospectives with Agile Coach Maria. Let's go. First question. You've spent two hours in a team retro, but the only input you've heard is Dave's. Boardroom or Miroboard? Boardroom. In Miro, Dave can't hog the space because everyone can add thoughts anonymously, online, at the same time. Correct. Next. You need the team to act on feedback fast. So you turn all those retro notes into Jira tasks instantly. Miro all the way. And I can assign those tasks to teammates. You're nailing this. Now, you see hundreds of sticky notes from the retro. A real mess. But you organize them into five themes in just seconds. Miro, I basically get back an entire hour when I use its AI tools for clustering. And she's done it. Join over 60 million people running actually enjoyable and actionable retros in Miro. Get your first three boards free at Miro.com. That's M-I-R-O.com.